Welcome to All Ears at Child's Voice, a podcast discussing all things hearing loss. We aim to connect parents of children with hearing loss with the professionals who serve them. I'm Haley Gubbins, and I'm a P1 teacher here at Child's Voice. We focus on listening, speech, and language development for three to five-year-olds. This is my second year at Child's Voice, and I've loved working here. My favorite part of the job is watching the growth the students can make in such a short amount of time. To see a kid go from two-word utterances to a five-word spontaneous sentence has got to be the most rewarding part of this job. I also feel so supported by the staff, and I feel that we are constantly pushed to grow as professionals. This is truly a unique program and place to work. Last week on the show, we got to hear from four amazing mothers about their journey raising children with hearing loss. It was such a special episode. Go back and listen if you haven't. And now to start the show. Welcome to All Ears at Child's Voice, a podcast discussing all things hearing loss. We aim to connect parents of children with hearing loss with the professionals who serve them. We're your hosts. I'm Tatum Fritz. And I'm Wendy Dieters. We are so excited to have today's guest on the show, Meredith Berger. She joins us to discuss the unique challenges experienced by children with oral microtia and atresia. If those terms are unfamiliar to you, don't worry, we will be defining them for you, so please stay tuned. And Meredith is joining us remotely today from New York. She is the director of the Clark Schools for Hearing and Speech, New York campus since 2008. She previously worked as a deaf and hard of hearing education specialist at the Ear Institute and Hearing Learning Center at New York's Eye and Ear Infirmary. Additionally, she has past experiences working as an itinerant teacher of the deaf and as a preschool teacher of a classroom for children with hearing loss. She also has past experience working in early intervention. She received a bachelor's degree in education from the State University of New York College at Buffalo and holds two master's degrees from Canisius College in deaf education and educational leadership and administration. She is currently a doctoral student in deaf education at the Teachers College at Columbia University. Meredith, can you tell us more about how you got interested in the hearing loss field? First, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm very excited to talk to you today. I, like many hearing people, uh, my early interest in deaf education came from my early interest in sign language, and I ended up doing my graduate work in deaf education and was lucky enough to go to a program that's considered a comprehensive program. So there was, you know, a little of this and a little of that, but I was there at a time just post cochlear implants being approved for use with children. And so where I was in Buffalo was considered an educational rehabilitation site for children who had received surgery. And so really my interest in developing auditory skills and language from that perspective really grew out of that graduate school experience. But I would say that it was really firmly planted when I went from being a classroom teacher for deaf children to being an itinerant teacher and realizing the impact that not having well-developed auditory skills or appropriately fit amplification would have on a child's ability to make the most out of the opportunities in their classroom. And so that was 20 some odd years ago at this point, but it's an amazing field to be in. Yeah, that's so cool to be there like in the beginning too. That's exciting. So now you're the director of the Clark Schools for Hearing and Speech New York campus. Can you tell us what your role is there right now? 
Sure. As the director of the program, I say it's everything from meeting families the first time they may come to tour to supporting new professionals in the field who are starting their professional lives here at Clark and coordinating with all of the outside agencies that oversee us aside from just the things related to working with deaf and hard of hearing children. We have an early intervention program that's part of the state approved system. And we have a preschool program that's also approved as a special education preschool in New York State. And so children who come here are largely able to come here through public funding and their IFSP or IEP. And so kind of dealing with all of the the overlap between real families and real children and their needs and the bureaucracy of these systems is kind of where I try to hold everything in balance. That seems like a very large task. given that you are in Uh, New York. It is, yeah. Just out of curiosity, because we're early intervention providers here, do your therapists go into people's homes or did the children come to a center? That's a great question. So New York State is one of the states that allows for early intervention to be provided in a center-based location based on a child's unique needs. And so our program in New York is entirely center-based. And there are pros and cons to that. The way the system is set up, we actually are able to be involved with a family really from the point of referral because we are part of the system, so to speak. We can actually facilitate the referral to early intervention. We have a service coordinator who is in that official role within early intervention as kind of a case manager. We're able to do those early intervention evaluations We have an audiologist, so we can do audiology testing and fit children with hearing aids or Bajas, you know, when they're weeks or months old. And that's all part of the early intervention system. And we're also lucky because the system here allows us to provide hearing aids and Bajas with no out-of-pocket cost to the parent. It's, It's covered by early intervention. And so we're able to facilitate that happening as quickly as possible. And I often say that because we are able to see children when they're, you know, weeks or months old, probably one of the most important things that we are able to do as a center-based program is provide parent-infant groups where parents get to meet other parents who have children with hearing loss, who are around the same age, who are going through some of the same things at the same time to help them kind of expand and create a new network of support as they begin this journey. Early intervention here can cover the cost of hearing aids. Maybe we'll get into this later on in the conversation. We can talk about barriers to cost, but I think we have a barrier to Bajas being covered specifically. I think they're reimbursed at a lesser rate. Yeah, Yeah. because they're not as common, they're hard for families to obtain, they're harder to get coverage, providers don't know as much about them, service coordinators don't know as much about them, so it is definitely a challenge. Yeah. Uh, and I would say as we talk more about microtia atresia, like that kind of that one of the threads that runs through the conversations for this population is the fact that it is the low incident disability within a low incident population makes it challenging because even if someone knows about 
cochlear implants or hearing aids, they may never have met a child who is born with microtia atresia. And so every point that a parent interacts with the system, they're dealing with people who don't know about their child's needs, even though they often talk as if they're the expert to the parent, you know? And so I think that like pouring salt in the wounds as, as parents are trying to navigate and learn about these systems they're dealing with. Yeah. So we'll get more into those issues when we move into the main conversation. But one of the reasons why we asked you on today, as you know, is I saw your presentation at Eddie this past year on this population on children with oral microtia atresia. So before we move into the main discussion, can you share some more specifically about your personal connections to hearing loss and how you have become interested specifically in microtia atresia? I guess my story is a little bit atypical in some ways. My husband is deaf and uses bilateral implants, and we have two daughters. Our older daughter is hearing. And then when we were looking to grow our family, we decided to adopt. And our second child, our younger child, um, is adopted. She's from China, and she has bilateral microtia atresia. She's eight and a half now, and she has been home from China just over seven years. And... As I'm saying this, I realize I meant to ask her this morning about talking a little bit more about her. She's getting at that age where if I say, can I video you answering this question? She'll say like, no, and you can't use it for a presentation. Yeah. So you can can check with her and then we'll cut. Just let us know and we'll cut whatever we need to. Yeah. If you want to share now. (laughs) I'm sure she'll be fine. It's making me think of making sure I'm careful about her privacy. But actually, even before we adopted our daughter, I had had an interest in children with microtia atresia because of some kind of things that just happened through work. You know, years ago, as an itinerant teacher, I worked with a child who had unilateral microtia atresia who was also adopted. And at that time, the choices for amplification, it was essentially a metal headband that a bone oscillating hearing aid was put on and people didn't like to wear it because it hurt and it rubbed the skin. It was tight. They get headaches. So a lot of times people who had unilateral microtia atresia just didn't wear anything because there weren't really options for them. Once the first Baja on a soft band, bone vibrating hearing aid with a soft band was approved by the FDA, it became a point where there were other options. And I realized a couple of years ago that we were working with a family here and the child had unilateral microtia atresia and had not been aided. He was about two, two and a half, and he hadn't been aided. And we weren't questioning it at that point necessarily because it was the audiologist who was advising this. And we, at some point, the mother came in holding a bunch of equipment and saying, the audiologist gave me this. And it was an FM system for his non-microtia ear and a Baja on a soft band. And the audiologist handed it to the parent and said, well, try one and see how he does. Try the other, see how he does. Let us know. And it struck me and it struck our audiologist how vastly different that the counseling, the way it was done, leaving him unaided, like all of these things were compared to children with sensory neural hearing loss of any degree, really, in New York, which is a fairly aggressive audiology culture as far as management. And so it really struck us that the way kids with unilateral microtia atresia, which is most of the children that we come across, were 
handled, supported, talked about compared to other kids. And it made us stop and really think about what we were doing and why we were doing it. And so through that process, I became more involved with my crochet atresia professionally. So then when my husband and I were considering our the options as we were looking at adoption, we felt that because my crochet atresia is visible at birth, we would be able potentially to adopt a very young child because the diagnosis would be obvious at a very early point in the adoption world as far as things that can be identified. You said your daughter's from China? Yes, yeah. So how is that type of physical disability perceived? So this is a very general comment. So if I say something in a way that offends one of your listeners, I hope they reach out and let me know how I can phrase things differently because I don't want to speak on behalf of a whole country of people. But my understanding is that there is a lot of social pressure to conform. And so things that look different, even disabilities, are in a very different place culturally than in the U.S. And so even hearing aids and cochlear implants maybe are less commonly used at earlier ages because of the concern about differences and standing out. I hope that's changing, but we know a lot of children with microtia atresia who were adopted from China. And so if we assume that maybe that is part of the reason why they were available for adoption, consistent. And I would say the other piece for that is that the insurance system runs very differently in China. And so for many families who have children that may need medical care or supports for education or medically or what have you, there aren't the same systems there. So what we think of as something that can be easily addressed, there maybe it can't be as easily addressed. That's really interesting. I feel like that could also be a topic of conversation. The way that disability is viewed in different cultures So as you know, before we jump into our main discussion each week, we always ask our guests to share a story from the past week, and it could be something funny, something cute, something heartwarming. Does anything come to mind? Well, it does, actually. And again, it's about my daughter. It kind of struck me earlier in the week. So in addition to her identity as Chinese and now American and as an adopted child, we're also Jewish. And so she's got lots of identities floating around in her world. But she came home from Hebrew school the other day and was showing me the work that they had been doing on learning different letters and reading some of the letters and the vowels and context. And it's a very different alphabet reading system than English. And so she was telling me all of these things. And she actually has a really strong talent for languages and accents. And so she kind of commented offhand that her goal is to be fluent in two languages. And so I said, well, like, what languages do you have in mind? Because there are a lot of languages to learn. And she said, you know, well, I already know English fluently. And what other languages do you think I should learn? And I said, there are languages connected to the many identities that you have. Which would you be interested in? And She said, Spanish and French are really pretty common languages. Maybe I should learn one of those. But I did study Spanish for a couple of years, which her school has a language program. And so she took a couple of years of Spanish. And I said, well, yeah, that's true, but none of us are actually Spanish. And so that wasn't what I was thinking of, but it's a great language to want to learn. And so then she said, well, what language were you thinking of? (laughs) And I said, well, why don't you tell me like what you think? Because it's always these layers of hearing loss identity, Chinese, 
Jewish, New York City, what's going on, right? And so then she said, well, you know, I did take Chinese for a couple of years at after school, but I don't think I want to study that right now. And I'm taking Latin, which she started studying last year. <laughs> and she's like, I'm taking Latin, but I just realized the school year started and we haven't started Latin class yet, so maybe I don't want to study that one. And I'm learning Hebrew already, but I really think that Spanish would be a better language to learn. <laughs> so, you know, it just made me laugh thinking of the fact that she's got this awareness of all of these different languages in the world. They're all possible for her because she has auditory access and skill and awareness and just her metalinguistic ability to really talk about some of these things, which just struck me as kind of a statement about where we are today in high expectations, opportunity, and technology. I just had a dad ask me this morning if his son could learn two languages. So I know it's great, too, for our listeners to hear about someone else interested in learning multiple languages and also having hearing loss at the same yeah, time. Yeah, and I would say if, for parents who are thinking about that, if their children are using amplification that fits their hearing aid and they're using it 10 to 12 hours or more a day and people are talking with them and it's the language is purposeful, there is no reason why their children can't be multilingual. There's even research about children with cognitive special needs learning multiple languages because of whatever is spoken in the home and then English at school. And so more than half of our families here in New York speak another language, a language other than English at home. And so as long as those kids have access and someone is talking to them, we expect them to be bilingual. Yeah. Wow. Well, thanks for sharing that. I love that. Just picture her studying Spanish and Latin and maybe some Chinese and maybe some Hebrew. It's just incredible. So you mentioned briefly about oral microtia and atresia being diagnosed at birth because it is visible, but can we take a step back and define those conditions for our listeners? Sure. Thanks for asking that. I tend to use the term microtia atresia, but technically they mean two different things. Microtia literally means small ear. The microtia part could range from Stage one microtia, which is essentially you have roughly the shape of the outer ear, but it's lacking some of the definition that pinna would typically have, to grade four, which is complete absence of anything resembling an ear in any way. Grade three is the most typical, where it almost looks like the shape of a packing peanut instead of a full ear. And then the atresia refers to something that's supposed to be open on the body being closed. There are other kinds of atresias, but for oral atresia, it refers to the ear canal itself. And so the middle ear may or may not be formed as far as where the bones are. The bones may be there, but not attached to anything, or there might be just bone. It ranges, and that part can't be determined without imaging. But the fact that the canal itself is closed, typically, sometimes there's a little opening that might be pitted so it doesn't actually go through to the eardrum. Um, typically, that is what is considered oral atresia. There are so many different ways people refer to this. If you look on the CDC website, it'll actually 
refer to microtia atresia as anosia, which is a term meaning no ear at all. It's that grade four, but that's not what most cases are. And so it can be confusing also for families who are trying to figure it out if everyone's using different terminology. I have a tendency to just say microtia atresia, but I'm more concerned about the effect of the hearing loss piece, you yeah, know, right. the effect of the atresia. So by the nature of the canal being closed, it means that the normal way that sound travels from the outside world to the inner ear is blocked, right? Because typically sound goes from the air, it's funneled into the ear canal, it makes the eardrum move. The eardrum moving vibrates the middle ear, and those bones in the middle ear as they're moving, cause the fluid in the cochlea, in the inner ear, to move and the impulse is sent to the brain. But if you have that canal blocked and you think about when you've gotten off a flight and your ears haven't popped yet or you're underwater or you have an ear infection, in a way that's a similar situation, you hear sound, things are present as long as the inner ear is working, but they're not clear enough to give you access to the discrete sounds that occur with listening to language. What you just described as a conductive hearing loss, is it also possible for children with oral microtia atresia to have a sensory neural component or a mixed hearing loss? Sure, it's possible. It's not as common, and it seems to be more common if the cause of the atresia is a syndrome where there might be kind of malformations, not just in the outer ear, but into the inner ear or with, you know, more craniofacial types of involvement. The inner ear, the cochlea, develops at a different time than the outer ear. And so if it's something that is within the realm of microtia atresia not related necessarily to a syndrome, it's more likely that the cause is different than what would affect the inner ear development. Do you know of the children with oral microtia atresia, what percentage of those children have a syndrome versus having this be an isolated difference in their development? Yeah, sure. So I've heard that it's at somewhere between like 5 and 20% are syndromic cases. But it's also an area in general, as I said, the thread kind of runs through this as a low incident population. And so it's not an area where there is as much research as in other areas of hearing loss or even in other areas of visible birth differences or malformations. Like it's not life or death stuff like issues with your heart or your liver or something like that. And so I always question the statistics, honestly, because it's all based on what's reported. And each state, I think, has um, what they call a birth defects or birth malformation registry. And in New York State, it says right on the registry that the information is unreliable because of the way the reporting is done or not done. It's interesting that they're so upfront about it. So earlier, I know you mentioned that because this is a visible physical difference in these kids that they can be diagnosed quite early on. And I know at the talk that I saw you presented, Eddie, you talked a little bit about the challenges that families face when it comes to the diagnosis process. So can you share some about how the diagnostic process is currently taking place for families and if there's 
what kinds of challenges families are running into when it comes to this? Sure. So in theory, it should work the same way that it works for any child born in the U.S. The Joint Committee on Infant Hearing recommendations is that every baby born should be screened for the presence of hearing loss by one month. If they are referred for further testing, they should be receive diagnostic testing by three months at the latest. And if they have a hearing loss, they should receive amplification within a month of diagnosis and then be enrolled in appropriate therapy no later than six months. So in theory, that's how it's supposed to go, right? But the reality is that this is different than children who have just a sensory neural hearing loss because it's typically visible. And so what parents tell us quite often is that they were in the hospital, the baby is born, dad is typically seeing the baby before mom, and dad will often see it sometimes before the doctor. And Murphy's Law, this is often a first baby to these parents, right? And so dad is looking at the baby and looking at the doctor and kind of waiting to see if there's a reaction. I've heard a number of parents say things like, I thought it would just pop out, like maybe it was just folded coming through the birth canal. And so they kind of are trying to wait to see what the doctor says. Often people who are in the delivery room have never seen microtresia before. And so they either may not notice it at all, even though the parents have, or they may give comments like, oh, we'll look into that type of thing. Nothing helpful. But the parents have wondered, and there are parents who, in the delivery room or once they've gotten settled into a room post-delivery, they're using their phones and looking up things like baby with no ear or, you know, missing ear, that type of thing. And so they are diagnosing by Google often, sometimes weeks or months before they meet a medical professional who gives it officially a name, depending on what the access is to services where their baby is born. And so depending on the luck of the draw, that will kind of determine who they happen to talk to. So a baby that has microtia atresia will be considered a failed hearing screening or referrals hearing screening, so they'll be sent for further testing. In theory, if we follow 136, but sometimes parents are told like, oh, this isn't a big deal. They'll probably hear fine out of the other ear. They pass the screening in that ear. Don't worry about it. Things like that. And so it's not the same information is not being given or the same care is not being necessarily given to these families as a child who has sensory neural hearing loss. Mm-hmm. I remember that story that you shared about diagnosing via Google, and I couldn't even imagine the uncertainty, the stress parents might be feeling, the misinformation that they're finding online. So you talked about the inconsistency in the diagnosis process. I think Tatum and I have both seen some inconsistencies in terms of recommendations for amplification, too. So can you tell us what kinds of amplification options are available? for children with oral right. uh, microtia atresia. 
Yeah. So what ends up happening when we think of that one, three, six idea? So you would think that, you know, this baby is identified literally at birth, but maybe if they can't get the actual ABR, which might be used to do the in-depth diagnostic testing to just confirm that it's just a conductive loss versus conductive and sensory neural mixed loss, and to confirm that the other ear is indeed hearing within normal limits. And so you would think that these are children who would get access to amplification quickly because you've got the information quickly about how they hear. But that is often not the case. Often, similar to some of the information on unilateral hearing loss in general, a unilateral microtia atresia could be dismissed because of assumptions that the other ear is fine and can carry you through life. But for children who are meeting with an audiologist and talking about amplification options, the parents will be told about bone vibrating devices. A couple of companies make them. These devices were initially designed to be surgically implanted, but the surgical piece can't occur until children are over the age of five and have a certain skull thickness, traditionally, based on the FDA regulations. And so wearing the devices on a soft headband that's actually considered part of the medical device is the recommendation. And then the headband is placed in such a way that the vibration where the bone vibrating device connects to the headband is pretty close to the ear. It's usually worn right behind the ear. And it mimics the natural phenomenon of our skulls actually vibrating when sound gets to about 60 decibels or so, which is conversational level. And so in mimicking that natural process, it takes sound that's out of reach of children with this hearing loss, and it brings it within normal limits if their cochlea is intact and formed. Doing that essentially gives them not necessarily the same access distance-wise as far as how natural hearing works and can hear things at a pretty great distance and can filter amazingly well, but it gives them access to the range of sounds that occur in spoken language. There are some barriers, though, because depending on where you live, you are dependent on your insurance covering it or, you know, Medicaid if that's an option. Whereas, like in New York, it's considered a hearing aid for early intervention purposes. But in other states, it sounds like, you know, what you deal with in Chicago is that other things are covered, but Bajas may not be. Yeah, I think the issue here is that it's reimbursed at a lesser rate, but is reimbursed, but then because of the lesser rate, getting it through certain centers, they have to provide it at a loss to cost. I'm I'm pretty sure that's the issue. Right, so a lot of centers don't distribute them because of, just like Tatum said, the reimbursement rates. So I know a family that I actually was working with this morning had to travel about maybe 40 miles outside of their suburban Chicago location to obtain their bone anchor device. And then they get their audiology services closer to home. And that's hard. And realistically, because there hasn't been a lot of research done on outcomes for young children with unilateral conductive hearing loss because of microtia atresia, and if early intervention and insurance don't cover the cost, you know, doctors and audiologists don't want to recommend something that they don't feel they can say is needed. 
because it is a big expense. The challenge that we have is that we know when they're Googling, when a parent is Googling, the things that they're typically coming across first are the surgical reconstruction options for either opening up the canal or reconstructing the outer ear with or without the canal. Those have very little to do with hearing and they have nothing to do with hearing during that critical period of language development. And so we always talk about trying to reset it to like, what can you do now? It's great to do that later. And some of the surgical websites, like some of the plastic surgeons, the otologists and ENTs, even if they have big practices based on this, Often on their website, it will say if your child has microtia atresia in one ear, you only need to do something if a delay develops. Yeah. And that makes me cringe because it goes against the whole purpose of newborn hearing screening, right? Because the newborn hearing screening is not about finding out who has a hearing loss. It's about doing something about when a baby has a hearing loss. Yes. And so to do nothing and wait to hope we can catch up later is mind-blowing to those of us who work with babies. So it sounds like we know in some areas a barrier could be the cost. Once yes. families actually have devices, there's some additional barriers that we know that they face Mainly, I just want to talk about the headband. There's a lot of issues with the headband that my families experience. If their child is a boy, there's some cultural and social norm considerations around wearing a headband. And then the headband is just frustrating sometimes. It falls off. It's hard to stay in place. Or if a kid has glasses, I could go on and on about this. Can you speak some about the headband? As a parent, I didn't deal with this with my two-week-old or two-month-old or what have you. I started dealing with this as a parent when my daughter was 21 months old. But even at that point, I was dealing with the fact that whenever a baby is put down, they are in something that their head is resting on, right? Even at the age where they have head control, they're in a stroller, they're in a car seat, they're in a high chair. And if they're younger and have less head control, obviously that's even more often. And so the devices pop off a lot and you're dealing with those kinds of things. But the social piece at the beginning is a big thing. It's this reminder, especially if there's a boy and statistically more children who have microtia atresia are boys than girls. And so... When we work with families with young children, we talk a lot about the grief process and the kind of adjusting and the learning curve and all of those things. And we don't want parents to live in a state of denial forever. But denial when you're going through something hard at the beginning is a really healthy and appropriate coping strategy. And so if you have a baby who has a sensory neural hearing loss, you can take that hearing aid off or when you first get them out of the crib, you're snuggling and you have those moments of bonding without the reminder. You can just be without thinking. But if you have a baby who has microtia atresia, you can't forget it. You see it all the time, right? You don't have that period of time of checking out. And then you have, on top of that, someone is saying, put a headband on your little baby boy. And whether or not they have hair as an infant, people are assuming, you know, that they're a girl if they have a headband on and they're asking questions that you don't even have the words yet to be able to say out loud without falling apart. And that headband piece is really, really hard. I think the companies are trying to do a better job of having colors or sports themes or animal themes. 
There are some families that will have like made other types of headband wearing options that they sell on Etsy. I'm not a huge fan of those because people don't realize the soft band itself is part of the medical device and is made to have a certain tension so that the contact from where the Baja device connects to the soft band is placed for the sound quality. But if someone is going to buy something off the internet, I would say to bring it to your audiologist so you can have it tested in the booth to see if there's any loss of sound quality. Yeah, that's um, nice. So then they can still child. have like the option potentially to use different designs, but have it confirmed by the audiologist. Yeah. I know some of our kids recently have had cuter designs and stereotypically like boyish designs. I think I have a kid with like some dinosaurs mm -hmm. on his and I think that does help to help. I think it... People who are interacting with their Yeah, child. I think it helps for parents to feel that way. I think yeah. that depending on who they are and how they respond to things, it can be a harder barrier to overcome than it is for somebody else, right? And we often say here that when we get a phone call from a new family, like that's when therapy, in terms of meaning the word support, that's when therapy starts. It's not when they're finally approved. It's that first phone call because you're probably the first person who is reading between the lines and what they're asking versus what they're trying to ask versus what they don't even know they're asking, right? Yeah. And sometimes as people in the vicinity, whether family members or professionals, we want people to like be happy and okay. And so sometimes we don't validate the fact that this is hard. They didn't expect this. They don't know why it's happening. They're getting conflicting information. And sometimes we have to say, to parents, like, I know you want me to say, like, it's okay not to wear this. That's a decision as a parent. You have to make that decision. But we're saying we want your son to wear this for these reasons. I know this is hard. And just stop talking. Because we say we know it's hard, but... And then we've invalidated that first part. Yeah. <laughs> and we try to point out that the same way you do when a baby is wearing hearing aids and they've discovered they have hands and they pull it off and you have a parent who will say, oh, they must not like their hearing aids. That's yes. why they're pulling it off. Yeah. No, they're going to pull off their hat, their socks, their shoes. You're going to get duplicates, triplicates of those things because they're going to lose them so often when they're infants. The hearing aid and the Baja, the soft bands, whatever device is being used, it's the same thing. They're going to take it off because they have hands and that's what babies do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so if we can get parents through that part and validate the fact that this is hard and not what they expected, but they can start to see the benefit to their child, you move forward. Yeah, so recently we've started to see some exciting alternatives to headbands pop up. Are you seeing those as well in your center? So we are. Competition is a really good thing. And so the companies are responding to requests from parents, but they're also responding to what the other companies are doing. And so we're seeing things like a different kind of headband. It almost looks like the headband you might use for a Bluetooth headset or something. Are that you one talking of the companies about like the, has that, so the sound arc or the one that comes like from behind? Exactly. Yep. 
So talking about the sound arc, Medel has the ad here, which has the adhesive sticker that goes onto the mastoid, which is the area where like a soft band would be used. And you connect the bone conduction device that way. But it also has a soft band wearing option. These options are really exciting to see because it gives parents and kids choices. So Meredith, in the earlier part of the show, we talked about the percentage of children with oral microtia atresia that also have um, genetic syndromes. What other populations have a higher incidence of oral microtia atresia? It's really interesting to see the information on this because what people often ask, either when I'm presenting or just kind of in conversation is, it seems like we see a lot of children who are Hispanic who seem to have microtia atresia. Is that a thing or is it just our clinic or something? And it is actually a thing. The highest rates, as far as the children we would typically see in the U.S., would be children who are of Hispanic descent, Hispanic without African ancestry, and also non-Hispanic Native American Indian and Native Alaskan populations have really high rates. The Hispanic I've seen is compared to white European descent is seven times higher. Asian I've seen four times higher. And then African or African American as being the population with the smallest population of children with microtia atresia. There was actually an interesting article that I'd come across. It's from 2014, but I just came across it recently that actually compared children whose mothers were Hispanic from Mexico who immigrated to the U.S. after the age of five or before the age of five. And if the mother came to the U.S., after the age of five, the child had a higher likelihood of having microtia atresia. That's so interesting and such a specific statistic. I know. Well, my (laughs) mind just went all over the place with environmental toxins and what causes that. That's a rabbit hole we won't go down right now, but that's fascinating. It's it's so interesting. And then I came across something else that was talking in general about, I hate this term, but it's the term the CDC uses, the tracking of birth defects. And there was something that I came across recently that said that for the things that they track, which are like certain kinds of heart defects, liver and kidney defects, like those types of things, that in general, Asian populations have a lower rate of all of those things, except for microtia atresia. Hmm. That's fascinating. Yeah. And I think what they're suspecting is that there are certain things that are clearly environmental somehow, and then there are certain things that are maybe genetic and environment interacting. Yeah, exactly. I would say the majority of children that I've worked with who have had oral microtrusia have been Hispanic. So yeah, I've definitely Mm -hmm. seen that. We've talked a little bit about the inconsistencies when it comes to professionals recommending amplification. Something else we've seen before is inconsistencies with the recommendation for intervention. And I know you've kind of touched on this when you've mentioned like some providers saying that it's all right unless a delay develops. But are there any current best practices for recommending intervention? And are all kids getting intervention for this? So I assume that many kids are not getting intervention for this. It's not well tracked for a number of reasons. And I think that the challenge we have with recognizing first that one ear 
does affect language learning and brain development as far as that balance and binaural summation and hearing in a balanced way between your left ear and your right ear and access to sound and filtering and like all of those things that affect unilateral hearing loss in general apply to unilateral microtia atresia. But those are challenges that the unilateral hearing loss, sensory neural hearing loss population has as well. So I think that I would make the assumption without taking too much of a risk that there are children who have not received therapy who should. And then whether it's when the child is two and a half or three, or when their child is older and having trouble in school, a parent is then saying, well, do you think this is because they didn't have therapy and or they weren't using amplification, you can't tease out then what part is what. But to me, if we had provided the support at the beginning and then something came up, we would know for sure it wasn't because the hearing loss wasn't addressed. And so here we have a pretty strong approach to it, you know, because for any child who comes here, like the basis for our listening and spoken language trajectory is you have auditory access. And so If a child is coming here, unless it's a very, very unique case where we're working closely with the primary audiologist to manage, if a parent chooses not to use amplification, we're not the right place, right? We don't have all the tools we need to have fidelity to that child. And so because of that, we have had children who, as they're developing, it's clear something else is going on. And the fact that they have unilateral microtia atresia didn't stop the process of figuring out what those other things were because they got early intervention. And so we had a child who was diagnosed a little over two as being on the autism spectrum. But if he had not received early intervention, they would have possibly taken another year or two before they considered autism as a diagnosis because they were hung up on it must be the hearing loss. And and to me, that's a tragedy that's preventable. The types of recommendations we make for children who have sensory neural hearing loss for therapy and support are exactly the same. We want them to have auditory-based speech therapy a couple of times a week. We want the family, if the child is younger, to participate in a parent-infant or parent-toddler group. And we want them to move on to a two-year-old supported group because we want to make sure that a delay doesn't develop that was preventable. That is, it's so much easier to keep up with typical development and make sure that child is working to their cognitive potential than to try to figure out how to catch up yeah. later. And exactly as you mentioned, like that's the whole point of newborn hearing screenings. That's the whole point of getting diagnosed early. That's the whole point of this Clerk School's Child's Voice. That's like our mission. We talked a lot about inconsistencies today, inconsistencies in care, in recommendations, in device use. Also, you've mentioned a lot too, also um, our lack of knowledge on this population in general due to the lack of research. So we wanted to give you a chance to talk a little bit about the research study that you're currently doing. Um, so will Thank you share you with our so listeners <laughs> what you're doing and, and maybe so- like how we can help too. That would be great. So I will definitely send you the flyer that has the information if you're able to edit to show notes and and as well as the the studies that I've mentioned. So I want to know more and I'm tired of hearing about decisions being made because there's not enough research. And so I decided that I'm going to do the research. And so the first research study that we're doing is based on getting feedback from parents on what their experiences were after their child was 
born. And so we want to know when did they notice, who spoke to them, what were the things they were afraid of or the questions they had at the beginning. And then as the process kind of evolved, and we're really, in my mind, we're looking at kind of the first six months, you know, birth to six months, because I think 136 is so ingrained in the way we think. But we want to see what information they wish they had, what did they have, what influenced their decisions to use or not use amplification, to enroll in early intervention or not. Even what specialists, were they referred to a craniofacial clinic or were they given a list of other types of consultations to have to look at heart or vision or kidney, like things that develop at the same time as the microtia, to see what themes emerge across these interviews with parents that can help us first identify directions for future research, but also to help us share with professionals the impact what they say or do may be having on the families that they come across. So we're recruiting parents who have children with microtia atresia. It can be unilateral or bilateral. We want the children to be between six months and six years of age. And so like a family, if they have a four or five month old, they could fill it out now, but we would wait a little longer because we want them to be past that first six month period of time, but not so far past that they don't remember the details. And I'll say that we started recruiting on a Sunday. One of our ways is through the Microtia Atresia Facebook groups for parents. And within the first three or four days, we had 50 people enroll, which is big. We're past 100 right now, but we're looking for more for a number of different reasons. And so the fact that within like a week and a half to two weeks, we had almost 100 people register to participate to me says a lot about how much these parents are looking to be seen and to share their stories. Yeah, we'll definitely include that info in our show notes. And we can include the handout too. Yeah. Is there a way that you can briefly like say the name of your website or just a a brief way to tell parents what to do? Sure. We have a place where people can sign up to participate. And the web address is bit.ly slash microtia atresia parents. Microtia atresia parents. Okay, we'll include that. Can families participate if they don't speak English currently? So I hate saying this for a number of reasons. Yeah, I know. At this point, for this particular study, we are asking for participants who have enough English fluency to be able to fill out the initial survey and to understand the informed consent process and to be interviewed in English. It doesn't have to be their first language. We are looking at ways of doing this in Spanish particularly because obviously the numbers of families that may not be able to participate. The fact that of the three of us who are involved with this, none of us are fluent Spanish speakers added a layer of complexity we didn't plan for for this part of the study. But it's the first of many. And so I would say for anyone who has families that have limited English proficiency, but who want to participate to just keep them in mind, because we will be circling back at a future point to try to capture the experiences of those families as well. Yeah, definitely let us know whenever you guys are able to include people who don't speak English. Even like for this podcast, we would love to be able to provide it 
to our Spanish-speaking families. Okay, why don't we move on to our last question, Wendy, if you want to go for it, and then we'll wrap up. Yeah, so as a way to sort of close out the show, we like to make sure that we've touched on everything that we all wanted to discuss today. So what advice do you have for families or professionals when it comes to this topic? If you can give us sort of a general piece of advice that you find very important. Well, I think that for professionals who are likely to be the ones who, to hear this first before new families, that to keep in mind that for whatever you know about families uh, based on your years of practice, that it's both the same and different for this population of families and that there are things that these families may be going through that haven't occurred to you and really trying to connect with either other professionals who have more experience working with families of children with microtia atresia or to connect the families with other families who are raising children is going to do more than almost anything else you can think of initially. You could be that port in the storm for a family that has a lot of questions and few places to go for information. And these are children who have the sky's the limit for them. You know, this is a the hearing loss piece. This should be an easy thing for us to address. And the supports that we provide should be enough to enable the child to reach their cognitive potential, whether they have just microtia atresia or part of a syndrome that has other impacts. And I think that if we work purposefully in supporting these families, we'll see the positive outcome with these children. Wonderful. I think that's excellent advice to close on. Um, So why don't we wrap things up there? Meredith, thank you so much for joining us. This was such an interesting and informative discussion, and we really appreciate you sharing both your personal and professional knowledge with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for asking and for also helping us get the word out about the work that we're going to be doing to hopefully answer some of the questions. Yeah, well, thank you for doing that work because we're really excited too to find out about your results. Speaking of that, do you have any contact information that you'd be willing to share with listeners? Yeah, my email address is mberger, B-E-R-G-E-R, at Clark, C-L-A-R-K-E, schools, S-C-H-O-O-L-S, dot org. If people are trying to reach me for the study or for general information, and for some reason the spelling of that email address didn't come through so well, the email address I use related to the study is mb4374 at columbia.edu. We'll put both of those in our show notes as well. So listeners, if you want to be sure of how to contact her, go ahead and go to our website to find the show notes. Listeners, we would love to hear from you. So if you'd like to reach out to us, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Tatum Fritz SLP and Wendy is at Wendy Dieters SLP. You can also email us at podcast at childsvoice.org. And you can find episode show notes and archived episodes at our Child's Voice website, childsvoice.org. And if you are interested in learning more about Child's Voice, Child's Voice is on Facebook as well as Twitter and Instagram with the handle at child's underscore voice, no apostrophe. And as always, we release episodes every other week on Wednesdays. So be sure to look out for our next episode. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. We will be taking a short break and episode 20 will be coming back on November 13th. 
Be sure to join us then. It should be another great discussion, so don't miss it. Bye! Thanks for listening!